Hi, everybody. I'm Neil Malonsalt. Welcome to the Twyla After Show. We just got done shooting the show. With me, of course, Carl Wiggers, my co-producer and co-hosts, Avery Davidson and Kristen Oaks-White. Um, first off, I guess we're going to talk a lot about, once again, a lot of water. There's just a lot of water in the state, and it's really been affecting us. Of course, we recently had Hurricane Barry. And um, some good news, though, by August 7th, the Mississippi River should be below flood stage for the first Woo-hoo. time almost this year, but really since early, early winter this year. It's just been the longest it's been at or above flood stage in history, or at least in recorded history. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that because the Bonacary Spillway is closing, but the effects of that water is still happening. And and my story kind of got into that with the shrimping industry. They're not affected too much by the, the Bonacary, but they are affected by the constant influx of this fresh water. Shrimp, of course, rely on brackish to salt water. And so this has not only pushed the shrimp offshore, but of course pushed uh, shrimpers further and further out. They're going 80 to 100 miles out to get their shrimp. And what a lot of people, I think, don't realize is you have two sources of fresh water going into the Gulf of Mexico right there with the Mississippi River pushing the majority of the water out. But the Chafalaya River is the one place that we have a delta building here in Louisiana. So you have a huge influx of fresh water going into the saltwater in an area that doesn't usually have that much fresh water. I'm talking about going toward uh, Vermilion Bay, Weeks Bay, all that area. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where uh, the shrimper I talked to, Thomas Olander, goes out of. He's off course. His boat, his home is on the Bayou Tesh. So to get to Sippermore Point, where he goes in and out of, that's a four-hour journey by itself. Now he's got to go even further out to get his shrimp. And he's having to go. It's all concentrated in that area between those two points, between the Chafalaya and between the Mississippi River. Only he estimates only about 1% of the shrimp caught are caught in the area that used to be right in that area by Sippermore Point. He's having wow. to go further and further out. And all the shrimpers are. And, and the thing is, is that as I talked about on the show, I mean, I don't really see how the shrimp industry recovers from this. Number one, they need a, uh, some infrastructure issues. They, they've got to have all of the collection points, the ice houses, and the the things like um, the Calumet Spillway, for instance, that's off mm. the Atchafalaya. He wants to have a dock built or a piers built to get that fresh water out and away so some of that brackish water can come back and restore the shrimp. So that's an issue right there. As I mentioned on the show, all of the shrimp uh, most of the shrimp boats aren't insured in the state so that's a big problem in and of itself and there's just the price issues the you know the toll it's taking on their mental health he talks about that during the story there's just so much the shrimp industry is under pressure you know right now and, and the the thing is as i as i mentioned We've got to decide whether or not we want this shrimping culture to continue in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. It's always been part of it. And there's a real good trend right now to where it will completely disappear in Louisiana. And I, I just don't know if we have the the national will really to get it done. We've recently saw that um, there was an MFP boost to all of the grain farmers. Shrimpers need something like that. And and we t- I talked about it then in my story. Um, Senator Kennedy is one of the people pushing uh, one of those bills forward, as well as a senator in uh, Mississippi who's trying to get some some of this damage mitigated from the the Bonacary. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the shrimp industry will get some of that. And they're but, probably still trying to get their feet back under them from 
almost, it was nearly 10 years ago that the oil spill happened. Yeah. And this has got to be, I know that you focused on the shrimpers, but oyster farmers have to be dealing with the same issues with freshwater. They are. And the crabbers. I mean, it's all of the Louisiana seafood industry right now. And that's a great point is that none of the, all those guys are in the same boat, so to speak, in terms of their lack of coverage, their lack of insurance coverage, low prices and weather and the environment working uh, unfavorably for them. I know you said uh, when we were talking earlier that Olander told you that if he could get out of shrimping, he would. I mean, you spent a lot of time with him. I mean, that's got to this is, by the way, from the president of the Louisiana Shrimp Association. Wow. He would get out of it today if he could. Wow. He's 59 years old. Retraining is just not something that's really feasible for him. Um, but what else is he going to do? You know, and, and he's got a lot of odd jobs. He worked a construction job, for instance, right after Hurricane Barry to get some extra cash. They're scraping by. And, you know, I just think about the fact that every day, People in the state and people from out of state coming here as tourists are eating shrimp po'boys. They're eating all all the the products of these guys, and they're they can't make a living off of it. Yeah, last night I made a shrimp scampi at home. Yes, from scratch. Mm-hmm. So whoever in here is doubting my culinary skills, but the point being, before I even thought about buying any kind of shrimp, I got to know where they're from. And you have no idea how happy I am that the labeling law mm-hmm. is now there because. Yes, I am that guy who would ask, where does your seafood come from before I would even think about ordering seafood? And I I feel very strongly about that when it comes to crawfish, when it comes to shrimp. So I'm sure y'all talked a little bit about that as well. We did. And he says it's a it's a good but small step in the right direction. Um, He estimates that 80 percent of Louisiana shrimp doesn't really make it above I-10. And so, um, you know, there's 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 enough shrimp to feed a lot of our nation's demand. But right now, there's just such an influx of Chinese shrimp that it's being, uh, you know, it, it's just it's hammering the markets. I do think, and he thinks that if people knew the difference, if they could taste the difference, if they could decide whether or not they wanted Louisiana shrimp, if they knew everything about what was in those Chinese shrimp, the antibiotics, for instance, Mm -hmm. that they have to put on them to make the weeks it takes to get across the Pacific here, the consumers might make a much more informed choice to buy Louisiana shrimp. As he said, he only stays out two to three days and then he brings it in and it's on ice the whole time, but you're getting that fresh product and it makes a difference. One of the things we talked about in private is as his the infrastructure of shrimp collapse, how long is it before it makes its way to consumers into our restaurants? When they go, when when consumers start eating the same shrimp they could get anywhere in the country, what makes us special? Right. No, but you see, that's where I wish we could take like somebody from or some influencers from Missouri, from the Midwest, bring them down to Delcom, bring them down to Sippermore Point, bring them down to Venice, and right off the boat, boil them up, and believe me, you will taste the difference. He says there's a difference even between the stuff further east and where he is. His his shrimp is a little sweeter, he says. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt that there's those regional tastes. I mean, we've got Vidalia onions, we've got Pecos Valley, you know, the, the cantaloupes that they have there. So there's these regional products that, um, uh, that, that make a difference depending on little changes in the environment. But the, you know, the overall point is, I really think that we need to decide whether or not we're going to ha- keep this part of our, our culture in Louisiana. Wait, you well, mentioned that uh, – well, go ahead, Kristen. I'm sorry. Well, no, you finish. No, no, because mine's, mine's funny and uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to be say silly. The, the moral of the story from what it sounds like is 
when you go to the grocery store, when you go to your restaurant, ask where the shrimp from. And then if they're not serving or they're not selling Louisiana shrimp, if you're at a local grocery store, I bet you could ask that person that's working in the produce department or the, you know, the, the meat market to please pick up Louisiana shrimp. Please mm-hmm. find a where find where you can purchase it because they're willing to do that. They're willing they to, to pick up mm-hmm. products if you if you're willing to buy them. Yes. So mm-hmm. that's something as consumers that we can do to to boost that industry. And he can you can go directly to Thomas Olander or any of these shrimpers and buy your shrimp directly from them. And you talk about fresh there. I mean, you'll never get a, a product like that. And if it goes away, you'll never get it again. And mm-hmm. I can tell you at least one pound of shrimp did not make it north of I-12 because it stopped at my house last night, Hoss. Very good. <laughs> very, very good. Well, let's move on to your story. I know we've talked a lot about it's water-related as mm-hmm. well. This is the further up north, uh, but still the same kind of body of water, the Atchafalaya River and the Mississippi. Yeah, it's kind of a, a different kind of story in that we're talking about water that is deposited by rain, fresh water. So we're talking about Hurricane Barry dropped upwards of 20 inches of rain in some parts of Avoyles Parish. Uh, Richard Fontenot over in Evangeline Parish told me that he got about 20 inches on parts of his farm over there as well. Uh, in Avoyles Parish, they're saying between 5,000 to 6,000 acres of soybeans, rice, and corn affected by the the weather. As in, I say affected, destroyed. Uh, and the the drone shots in the the story that I that I did this week really tell the story. You see where there is there are green leaves, and then all of a sudden, bare dirt. And there were plants there. You see the little stubble there. But there is no leaf left on it. You see where you have crisscrossing paths of plantings because they planted one time, lost that crop, planted again, lost that crop now. So um, the problem is you have 916,000 acres of land all draining out through one bayou, Bayou Patabla, over there by uh, between Port Barry and Crot Springs, which eventually makes its way down to Henderson and eventually into the Chafalaya Basin. But right there, right next to Simsport, where all this rain fell, is the Atchafalaya River. But it's levied off, so right. they have no way to drain into it. And so that's one of the things that Keith Lacombe, the farmer I spoke with, who is also on the levy district, he's a commissioner with the levy district, he's like, we, it's our neighbor. Why can't we just dump some of this water in there if they had some kind of pumping system or a canal to go that way? And it's not to handle the 15-inch rain because you're never going to be able to handle that. It's to handle the 10-inch rain. Yeah. So they're affected the same way by those like lesser rains? Oh, yeah. He said that in a 10-inch rain, the field that we were in, we would have been in uh, waist-deep water. And that's, you know, what's something we saw in Vic when I talked to Luke Says. I mean, it's that same kind of deal. It's the same watershed, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you were talking about destroyed soybean acres earlier, and Carl and I were talking before the sh- we shot the show about that, about the way that, um, you know, the MFP only barely covers some of that. Why don't you, you tell it's, well, tell me, tell them what you're, you told me earlier. One of the big, I was talking to my dad about this, and it's a big struggle of, you know, prevented planting there's there's prevented planting there's you can plant it and it can be a failed crop if it floods like this would be probably a failed crop and then there's also the mfp that comes into play with payments and it's just a big it's a big struggle for farmers nowadays to figure out how they're gonna i I guess um uh, certify this land uh you know and it's like kind of game time decisions and it's just a really difficult uh path to walk for farmers, I'm sure Landon probably has a deal with some of this, 
uh, as well because it's just it's one of those things you have to figure out and when april may comes around if i can't get this stuff planted june i guess for soybeans like what do we how do we you know put this down on the books is can we plant this or no is it failed and it all comes back to affect the mfp which i think we're going to talk about more next week on the show yeah we're, we're going to do a, that it's a, it's a big headache and i couldn't imagine being a farmer having to deal with this cause and you, well you can't count on the mfp or the market Mm-mm. facilitation program you can't count on that every year because it is set for this year for this crop year and it was for last year mm-hmm. but you don't know that and they don't announce that until you know later it was in the middle it's, of planting right, season. it's an ad hoc disaster yeah. so yeah, yeah i mean that's not something that farmers can count on each and every year and they can't count on it's a totally different program this year than it was last year last year it was based on bushels this year it's based on acres so mm-hmm. And planted be- acres. Right. Yeah. And before anyone listening to this starts calling this a bailout, it is the farthest thing from it. A bailout gets you back to back up on on floating where, where the level you were before. These payments will not get any farmer to the level they were before. Mm-hmm. They will continue to lose money even with these payments. These ensure that they don't go out of business, but not much more than that because you're coming off of two bad years in Louisiana. You're coming off of a year of lost soybeans and no MFP for people who didn't harvest. This year, yeah, you're going to have folks who are going to get MFP on planted acres because the rules change. But then you have someone like Richard Fontenot who lost 1,000 acres last year, wasn't able to plant that 1,000 acres, so he took prevent planting on those. Well, now he doesn't get MFP on that 1,000 acres. He's just the same loss as as before the mfp is a band-aid on a broken bone mm. is what it is i mean it like you said it gets you it might help you from filing for bankruptcy or staying in business but it's certainly not going to help you cover what you would have had had the markets been in good shape mm-hmm. and that's and the, what markets I, there was an article out today on i saw on yahoo about that that what farmers want what i've every time i've talked to one about this, they all say the same thing is I'd rather have good markets. I'd rather have markets we can sell into, you know, I, I I mean, yeah, they, they, it's good that they have that check coming, but at the same time, when barges aren't moving on the Mississippi, that's the real problem. That's where, you know, that's what's hurting them. They can't get that grain out. And, and eventually it's going to start taking its toll. Just like we talked about earlier with the shrimp industry, there's a chain effect when farmers are hurting, that starts into the infrastructure of the rural towns, which works its way down even into metropolitan New Orleans, which has a lot. I mean, 55% of our state's economy is ag. Mm-hmm. So it's going to start affecting downtown New Orleans pretty soon as well. We know the weather's affected downtown New Orleans lately. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, speaking of the New Orleans area, this week is a field to feast week, and they went out. Jennifer Finley went out. Unfortunately, she couldn't join us here today, but she went to some folks we are familiar with, Grant and Kate Estrade mm-hmm. there, who are in local cooling farms in Bogalusa. I did a story with them not too long ago. Taylor Fry did a story with them, and now we did a field to feasting. And uh, Carl, uh, I know you watched this already. Tell, give us a little preview about it. Well, it was a really cool story, and I've actually. I featured Kate and Laughing Buddha Farms on my convention story. So right. even just as recently right. as a few weeks ago. Um, so we're, we're pretty familiar with uh, what they do. It's a very small farm. They're big, big on the silva pasture with, you know, turning, you know, wooded lands into pasture land and kind of using a lot of you know, circulation as far as, you know, putting chickens on a, some pasture land and following them with goats or following them with some of their um, beef. And what was neat about this feasting, uh, field to feast segment, was 
a lot of the segment was spent with Grant and Kate just walking around with Jennifer and Tori, uh, Chef Tori from Commander's Palace. They were just walking around and learning about the farm. Oh, and then we're going to cook later. But it's mm-hmm. a lot. And in the tease, I wrote this. I don't know if y'all gathered this. I wrote, they go find some really, really fresh eggs. They're talking about the types of eggs that come from the different uh, laying hens that they have. Mm-hmm. And they literally go and find some, like, fresh still warm <laughs> and tori is sitting there holding this like, oh it's still warm like oh my gosh and they yeah. crack them open and talk about and kate's kind of educating them and i think I, I don't know if it was a, a brand new education or just kind of like a, a seeing it in the field mm-hmm. like first time maybe um they're showing how deep and rich the yolk is mm-hmm. in some of those eggs that they're you know uh they're laying there at their farm and it was just that was pretty neat seeing you know them there, Tori and uh, Jennifer out like spreading some some seed that <laughs> the cows are going to actually plant with their hoofs when they come and graze that area. So it was kind of cool. It was, it was neat. It's a very different segment, but um, I like it. I mean, it's 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 cool to see, you know, them learning about you know what this farmer's doing. And I think Tori even was trying to make a little deal, trying to get some some fresh eggs for some mm. of his restaurants and. Uh, and that's good. I, one of the reasons I think we feature them a lot over the last year or so is they're not only first generation farmers, but they're they're people who came from other industries and decided to start uh, farming. And so it's one of the things that we've always kind of been a pie in the sky thing with, you know, some we've talked so much in the show already about the struggle farmers go through. But we depend on them. And so this is a great way to show, you know, these first generation people getting back into it. And I think it's a, it's at least a sign of hope. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, I mean, agriculture, it's, it's expensive to operate a farm. I mean, we know this, we hear from the farmers that have so much on the line. It's expensive to get into the industry. And what's neat, and I'm not saying it's not expensive for Grant and Kate to do what they're doing or other farmers that are doing this on small scale, but what's cool is they're cash flowing it. They're finding a way to market their products on a small scale mm-hmm. and make a living at it and provide food to uh, their neighbors and their community, which is what they they call a, a great honor to be able to do that. And well, they're creating a market for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, they they market it in, in different ways out of the ordinary, which soybean cordon farmers, your, your traditional farming operations don't have that option. Mm-hmm. I, I would say related to that, you know, it's helpful that they started with a market of, of brick-and-mortar store in Metairie to begin with, Laughing Buddha Nursery, which, which they had a variety of products. And then they started offering their meats and their eggs and their milks and that yeah. kind of thing, their goat milk. So they had a ready market. They're sort of vertically integrated in a way that, that you know, 99.99% of farmers are not. But it's, it's it was helpful there. And they kind of went backwards right. from yeah. what you would think. You'd think maybe, okay, we right. have some cattle. Let's find a place to sell this. Well, they had the place to sell it, and then they had right. the cattle there. See, I just like their last name, Estrad, because it makes me think of Strad von Zerowich from uh, the Ravenloft series in Dungeons and Dragons. Wow. So, you there. know, 99.9% of the listeners to this podcast will not know what the heck I'm talking about it. About, Some but, of the people on the podcast don't know what say, you're talking about. I was about to say um, 60% of the podcast But, but Neil's going to get really up close and personal with Strahd in a, in a few years. Yeah, okay. Because he's part of the, our D&D adventure. Let's move on to, to something, something else moving Please. on. We've had an intern all summer long. Lacey Dodson is with us here in the studio. And uh, she's been having a uh, – we've had a great summer intern. It's 
spring as well, though, right? You were out there with uh, with us to uh, you went with me to Vic, Louisiana, where the right. you know, Luke Says was flooded. Uh, Lacey, tell me about uh, your internship. What did you get the most out of? Well, I learned a lot about D and D, a lot about death metal bands. Um, no, couple no, different I, things you're like saying that. you didn't enjoy your time here. <laughs> no, no, no. In all seriousness, I did um, really enjoy getting to go in the field with um, everybody and shoot stories. Um, I know sometimes y'all made a joke like, oh, we don't know if you're getting anything out of this, but it's like me and Carl were talking earlier. It's like trying to absorb from a fire hydrant because y'all have so much information to provide. And um, I think just going out there and seeing it and being able to use that in the future and not necessarily at the moment is what I probably got the most out of. Now, Lacey, you're going into law, but you do have some ag roots. Tell yeah, me about I that. do. Um, I grew up on a farm, shown cows, shown sheep a little bit. Um, my dad grew hay, all that. And so I was always out there helping him um, no matter what summer it was, no matter if we had something else to do. So I definitely think that that kind of influenced me in the way that I am now. Yeah, and her dad, Lloyd Dodson, is a real cattleman who I've been on a few trips with, slow talker, but you listen to every word he's got to say. Super, Super nice, nice guy. guy. Yeah. He's yeah. got a lot of funny um, funny sayings if you just listen. <laughs> yeah. I, I, one thing I, you know, I'm curious about, because we have a couple of farm kids in here, it just seems like growing up on a farm provides you a lot in the way of education that you, you know, it may not give you street smarts per se, but it ties into a lot of the businesses, a lot of the things that you're learning about at LSU. Right. Um, I think a lot that my dad especially has helped me with is just connections in general. Um, he, We always joke he never meets a stranger and he never meets somebody without knowing their social, secu- social security number because that's <laughs> how many questions he likes to ask. But um, definitely, I think... I can kind of tell the way that I do things at LSU and kind of um, how I conduct myself maybe a little bit different than some of my friends because they didn't grow up with the responsibility of, you know, you have to go feed the cows, you have to make sure they have water, you have to do this and that. So I think that definitely has um, influenced how I've grown up. Well, we really enjoyed having you. I mean, it showed that that uh, ag background because we gave you a lot of chores to do, transcriptions <laughs> and stuff. You never complained. You always did it on time and, you know, as soon as you could. So uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, fact, thank you all. Lacey, where's my coffee? Oh, I'll go get that as soon as we leave there. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't do that. Don't don't start him down that Bless road. It. All right. Well, I think uh, that's about uh, it for us before we get into another D&D reference here. Of course, uh, on behalf of Lacey, Avery, Kristen, Carl, and myself, thank you for listening. And we'll see. And Monica Velasquez, you hear that, that shutter clicking? Click, click it, click it. She's taking a picture of the microphone, the best microphone that I have. <clears throat> anyway, thank you, Monica Velasquez, for taking pictures, and we'll see you again next time. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with a friend. You can also support this podcast by completing a short survey on our website at twilatv.org slash podcasts. We would also really appreciate it if you would leave us a review wherever you're listening right now, be that Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. The Twyla After Show podcast is brought to you by the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Louisiana Farm Bureau is the voice of Louisiana agriculture. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you again right here next week.